It's November 15, 1899 in South Africa. A ramshackled armored infantry train, nicknamed the Death Trap, rattles through the British colony of Natal, putting out thick black smoke from its engine. It's been a month since the outbreak of the Anglo-Boer War, a bitter conflict between the British Empire and the Boer states for control of South African territories. Contained within the train's five wagons are 120 men, including a company of Irish and English light infantry. They're on a reconnaissance mission. Boer commandos have been spotted nearby, suspected of having destroyed the track further along. In the rear carriage, standing on a box so he can see over the open roof, is a 25-year-old war reporter. His round face has grown pink from the sun and sweat bristles on his barely distinguishable mustache. Through binoculars, he scans the rocky hills ahead. In his latest report for the Morning Post, the reporter wrote that the British have been underestimating the Boer. These Dutch descendants have become rich from gold mining and now possess superior artillery. They make fearsome opponents, the reporter claims. As the train rounds the next corner, the reporter sees around 20 bearded riflemen dressed in black, lining the crest of a hill, their rifles pointed at the train. For this reporter, a young Winston Churchill, it's his first sight of the enemy. With their rifle fire raining down around him, Churchill thinks again. The Boers are formidable. They've caught the British in an ambush, and soon they will have caught him as prisoner. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 15th. Winston Churchill is captured. It's November 15th, 1899 in South Africa. Boer commandos have just launched a surprise attack against an armored train containing, among others, Winston Churchill. As the Boers continue to pepper the train with bullets, British soldiers prepare to fight back. They quickly load an old field cannon and wheel it around to face their attackers. As he watches from his half-shielded position in the rear carriage, Winston wonders what the Boer riflemen are trying to do. Their bullets will never pierce the iron train. And that's when he notices several Boer riflemen wheeling three huge cannons of their own over the ridge of the hill. Now Churchill is worried. The Boers' cannons look far more powerful than the British one, which Churchill will later describe as an antiquated toy. And just then, from behind the enemy cannons, there's a sudden bright flash of light. For a strange second, there's no sound, just a dazzling yellow flare. Then huge balls of smoke appear all around the train. Winston instantly ducks down to safety. He's glad he's not alone in the carriage. He's surrounded by armed Irish fusiliers. Winston can no longer see what's happening outside, but explosions boom all around, the sound reverberating within the metal carriage. The men inside all lurch forward as the train speeds up. The driver is obviously accelerating, trying to get away. And then Winston hears an almighty crash. The train shudders to a stop, causing every man to stumble off their feet. 
Winston can guess what's happened. In his panic to escape, the engine driver must have sped straight into some obstruction that the bore laid across the rails. It's exciting and terrifying, but this isn't the first time that Winston Churchill has seen military action. Just last year, he was serving as both reporter and soldier in Sudan and had fought in the Battle of Omdurman. He still has his pistol from that conflict, a semi-automatic Mauser, and he reaches for it now. Knowing that they'll be blown to bits if they remain in the carriage, he and the armed fusiliers clamor out to defend themselves. Once outside, Winston takes in the catastrophe. The enemy seems to have tripled in number. The air is thick with gun smoke and the whizzing of bullets. Winston immediately starts running to the front of the train, looking for somewhere to shield himself. The British cannon sounds off, but an enemy shell hits and knocks it completely out of its carriage just as Winston passes by. Then, as he makes his way past the engine, situated in the middle of the train, another shell bursts overhead, its shrapnel almost killing him. Winston hits the floor and crawls to the shelter of an overturned carriage. He surveys the damage of the collision. Large stones which the boar have laid across the track have tossed the front carriage from the rails. It's now upside down on a nearby embankment, surely having killed its occupants. The second carriage is on its side, with wounded infantrymen scattered on the ground beside it. The third carriage remains upright, but is half off the rails. It's still connected to the engine, and everyone can see that it will have to be detached and shoved aside if the British are to use it to escape. The British commanding officer orders his men to provide cover, while Winston and others try removing the derailed carriage from the line. They struggle for over an hour, dodging bullets and artillery, until they eventually manage to uncouple the carriages and free the engine. Then another shell strikes, sending the train's engine up in flames and rendering it useless. Winston, hiding in an overturned train carriage, peers out to notice at least one British soldier waving a white handkerchief, a signal for surrender. A dozen Boer horsemen dash down the hill, their dark clothes flapping, and surround the British soldiers. Winston watches in dismay as several soldiers throw down their arms and others attempt to flee. The Boer horsemen shoot them down. It was just two days earlier when Winston composed a letter to a high-ranking friend, writing that there's been a great deal too much surrendering in this war. With this on his mind, he jumps out of the flaming locomotive and scrambles up the bank, intending to fight to the death. He then realizes his pistol isn't in his holster. He's left it inside the train. As riflemen close in around him, Winston Churchill, whose mantra of never surrender will later become part of his most famous speech, slowly places his hands in the air. But over the coming weeks, the Boer army will learn that capturing Winston was the easy part, keeping him will prove much more difficult. It's November 5th, 1899, in Natal, South Africa. The Boers' attack on the armored train has been successful. As the British survivors are taken prisoner, Winston measures their defeat. Even on a quick count, he can tell that at least 40 British soldiers were killed. Winston's fair skin has also been under attack from the blazing sun, but seeing his redness, a Boer soldier lends him a hat. Winston thanks him, surprised by the lack of cruelty. 
He'd been warned that the boar would be vicious in victory, but finds this is not the case. The boar commanding officer addresses the prisoners, commending them upon their valiant fight. He assures them that they'll be treated in accordance with internationally recognized conventions of war. The British are then marched off in a miserable procession toward the Boer territories. At the first opportunity, Winston presents his paperwork to a Boer officer. Pointing at his credentials, Winston insists, I am here as a war correspondent, not a soldier. During the battle, I didn't even shoot a gun. But the paperwork reveals more than just Winston's profession. Somebody recognizes his surname too. It's soon established that his late father is the renowned politician Lord Randolph Churchill. When told his identity, one officer finds it very amusing, chuckling, We don't catch the son of a lord every day. The prisoners are then transported to camps in Pretoria. The low-ranking soldiers are marched off to a separate location, but Winston is placed with the officers inside a building that was formerly a working schoolhouse. It's situated on a corner of two residential roads that run through the city and is surrounded by tall iron railings. Twelve large classrooms form the dormitories and dining room. In its former life, children would play in the spacious quadrangle surrounding the building. But now this area is for the armed guards who patrol constantly. This doesn't deter Winston from resolving to escape as soon as he can. He finds imprisonment deeply humiliating and hates the idea of being stuck in a place that reminds him of being a child again. At first, he tries to bribe the guards. At this time, the Praetorian government provided prisoners with money to purchase groceries from a visiting shopkeeper. Winston saves three shillings a day until he has enough to make his guards an offer. Take the money and let me go. But Winston finds the guards incorruptible. Over the coming weeks, Winston and two British officers make a study of the guards' movements through the nighttime. Electric lights illuminate the quadrangle as the guards patrol the perimeter of the ten-foot-high fences. But there appears to be moments in their routine when the guards are briefly blinded by the lights, hopefully long enough to give Winston and his companions a chance to make a run for it, scale the fence, and steal away into the night. Winston looks upward to the dark night sky. He recognizes the Orion constellation twinkling above him. The nearest neutral territory is 300 miles from here, and he isn't exactly sure how to get there once he's over the fence. But at least, thanks to the stars, you'll know what direction to head in. The next day, Winston speaks to the visiting shopkeeper, the one who delivers the groceries and supplies to the prisoners. Winston asks the shopkeeper if he can provide him with a tweed suit, different in style to the brown cloth ones worn by the other prisoners. Once he's over the wall, Winston wants to look more like a civilian and less like an escaped convict. But he doesn't tell the shopkeeper that. Instead, Winston slips the shopkeeper his saved shillings. The man doesn't ask questions and happily obliges. On the evening of December 12th, Winston and his two companions wait for the moment to dart across to the fence. Seeing the guards sharing a cigarette in the spot where the lights blind them, the escapees move quickly yet quietly, terrified that they'll be seen and shot. Climbing a latrine beside the fence, his friends heave Winston up, and after a moment's hesitation, he pulls himself over, landing with a thump in the garden of the neighboring villa. Winston peers over at the villa, worried that someone will come out and confront him, Meanwhile, his fellow escapees are struggling to get themselves over the fence before being spotted by the guards, who are just now on the move again, out of the blinding light. 
Having lost their opportunity, his companions abandoned their attempt, leaving Winston alone. Soon, Winston Churchill will be strolling through the streets of Pretoria in a dapper tweed suit. He decides he'll head for the nearest train station, because after all, if a train got him into this mess, a train might get him out. It's the evening of December 12, 1899, in Pretoria, the night of Winston Churchill's escape. Crouching in a ditch 200 yards beyond a railway station, Winston quietly waits for a train. He has just four slabs of chocolate to sustain him as he attempts to travel unseen through hundreds of miles of enemy territory. His only chance of survival is to hitch a ride. He hears the approaching rattle of the train, which has just left the station. Then, timing it perfectly, he hurls himself onto the couplings of the fifth carriage and grabs a handhold. It's an open-roofed goods train. He crawls up and into one of the carriages where he's greeted by a bed of soft sacks covered in coal dust. He rolls over onto his back and stares up at the stars as he catches his breath. Their twinkling light assures him he's heading in the right direction, and so burrowing into the bags, he falls asleep as the train carries him away. The following morning, the guards at the prison camp find a letter on Winston's bed, addressed to the Boer Undersecretary for War. It reads, I do not consider your government was justified in holding me, a press correspondent and non-combatant. I have therefore resolved to escape. Yours sincerely, Winston S. Churchill. Five days later, Winston reaches the neutral Portuguese territory of Lorenzo Marquez in Delagoa Bay. During that time, he traveled by night and rested by day. He hid in coal mines with rats, walked through woods and drank from gullies. A persistent vulture trailed him in the sky, ready to feast should he collapse. But now Winston is in friendly territory where he can wash, eat, and change out of his ruined tweed suit. News of his escape spreads quickly. From Delagoa Bay, safe passage is secured to the port of Durban, where not for the last time in Winston Churchill's life, he's greeted by huge cheering crowds as a hero. Next on History Daily, November 16th, 1720, pirates Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, and John Rackham stand trial after being captured by Captain Jonathan Barnett. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bond. Sound design by Derek Barrett. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by James Benmore. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship, Pascal Hughes for Noiser.